Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Alex Kruger, and you're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast from the New Statesman. Every Monday, we interview a guest with a unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Suzanne Hoff from Las Prada, a European anti-trafficking NGO platform. She's the co-author of a new report which warns of the risks to women and children fleeing the war in Ukraine. Suzanne, who is most at risk and why? What dangers do they face? What we think who are most at risk are, of course, people who have fled the war quite in a rush. People who yeah, might uh, have left without documentation or who have difficulties to prove that they are Ukrainians, uh, in particular also because the AU was quite quickly with offering a temporary protection scheme. And we think that those in particular who are unable to access this temporary protection scheme or who face challenges to access this protection are most at risk, which we always see uh, at wars that people who have less access to, to countries or to protection and support are more at risk. We see, of course, also a lot of children being leaving who are separated and un- unaccompanied. We also see often that they are quite at risk. And yeah, we see a lot of women and girls this time. Normally we see much more men leaving wars, but here we see many women and girls who are, of course, also quite vulnerable for sexual exploitation, but also for labor exploitation. But in particular, we see those who have no access to the protection schemes, people without uh, Ukrainian nationality, and then in particular, also people who experience more marginalization and discrimination. So minority groups, LGBTQI people, that, for us, uh, would, uh, would be among those uh, mostly at risk. So what happens? Are they being targeted when they cross borders? They get across, say, into Poland or Romania or Hungary and somebody comes up to them and offers them a job? Or how does it work? 
Yeah, of course, the war is only two and a half months old, let's say. So we don't have sufficient evidence yet that we can say these are exactly the routes that we use now. Normally with conflicts and war, we see that people are already targeted on their way. Also because then very often people um, maybe need other people to enter a country. Maybe they pay to be smuggled or for facilitation. And often we already then see exploitation and abuse debt bonding being used. This time we heard a lot of anecdotal evidence that people said people were uh, recruited already on the way. People were offered a lot of uh, like transport, already offered housing, but also work already on the roads and also at the borders of the different countries near Ukraine. We already heard that people were offered jobs. Now, of course, it could be that this transport, these housing offers and those jobs are legitimate and it's just people wanting to help. But we have had stories and we also know of some informal and formal investigations that some of those offers were dodgy and had clear indications of potential exploitation. We also see that exploitation and abuse happens when people are already in the country. That could be when they're, for example, already in Poland, but looking for housing, looking for work, and then could receive offers for which they are expected to do something in return which can also maybe lead to exploitation and abuse. So there are different ways in how people can be trafficked. There are also many different forms, but very often it's, it happens when people are offered something or they get certain information and in the end, yeah, it proves that they have to do certain services or they have to work, which is not based on real contracts on decent standards and yeah, people maybe sometimes also gradually end up in exploitation and abuse. And are they more vulnerable when they cross into another country because they don't speak the language, they don't have the contacts, that kind of thing, they're, they're isolated, they don't know how to get out? Yeah, in general, people are vulnerable, especially when you flee the war, you are, you don't know where, what's your plan. You very often don't have a plan. You don't know where to go to. You very often have fled in a rush. That already creates vulnerability, but especially those who already faced maybe sexual exploitation before or maybe were impacted by the war before, before, for example, they came from the occupied territories. That, of course, also creates vulnerabilities. And as you said, if people don't speak the language, if they don't know anyone, if they have never been in those countries, they are, of course, much more dependent on others to help them, to support them, which again creates vulnerabilities. I was interested by one of the mentions in the report about uh, the risks posed by social media. So in early March, not long after the war had started, I was on the border with Ukraine in Hungary and Slovakia. One of the people I spoke to who was fleeing the war, she had used Facebook basically to get across the country with her two children. So she would put a message up on Facebook saying, I'm going to be in this town tonight. Is there anywhere I can stay? She had these two teenage children with her. They were fine. They got out of the country. But I suppose in that kind of situation, you're just throwing yourself open to whatever can help you. And the risks must be enormous. Yes, of course, we hear a lot about trafficking and the media and how many people are recruited in general also are making use of new media. Of course, we have to say that media as such is just a tool. Huh? And of course, when you or me are trying to find a new job or trying to find or to connect with people, 
we use technology too, we use media too. So as such, it's just a tool. But what is particular is that, uh, as you mentioned in your example, people very quickly connect, they can connect with absolute strangers. And there's also much less opportunity to, of course, check who is the person, is the person behind the emails or behind the messages? Is it the person that I believe the person is? We have heard numerous stories about that. And as you said, very quickly people rely. And we've seen that too. There are a lot of internet groups nowadays, Facebook groups and other social media groups and people offering transport, offering housing. And then very quickly it can be arranged. I will be there tomorrow and I'll pick you up, which of course could help to offer very quickly support and assistance. But of course it's hardly monitored. There are a lot of risk and you don't know if the people who would be standing there the next day offering your support really has the right intentions and there's hardly no possibility to check this and that's in creates uh, that creates of course a lot of risks what has been the response from the authorities from the governments and in, in various countries you mentioned the eu temporary protection Dir directive has the response been appropriate yeah, in general, you can say on one hand, what was very good, you mentioned the temporary protection directive. This is the first time ever that it was activated. So that's, of course, very positive. And that's the first time that such a large group immediately received access to protection and support, even access to work within the EU countries. So that's very positive. What we saw in particular in the beginning, that there was complete chaos. The countries were not prepared, not in Ukraine, of course, but also also not in the neighboring countries to inform people, to tell them where to go. Everything was new, also related with this temporary protection directive. So we saw, especially in the beginning, a lot of chaos, which also led to the fact that many people could come to the borders. Many people could also access shelters where in particular an accommodation was in particular offered also by private persons because it took time to organize all the shelters also at governmental level and especially in those days in the beginning there was a lot of chaos. It's still now you see that governments try to provide quite good accommodation and, and also information. You see that information, it's much more streamlined, referral is much better, but still we see quite some gaps. We see that, yeah, much reliance still on, on private support. Governments have difficulties to organize the transport, the housing, all the protection measures. There's still a lot of questions about the implementation of the temporary protection directive. And also what we saw, and even though that slowly starts, we saw that a lot of volunteers in the field, people did not know who, they were not fetted, they were not checked. Also for other organizations, so people had no passes, people could not identify themselves. And that of course takes time, but it took quite some time here. Now we also still see in general, there is much better coordination, but there are a lot of coordination structures set up also because UN bodies step in, which on one hand creates more coordination, but at the same time, uh, yeah, it's also overlapping with existing structures. So we very much stress for the use of existing structures, existing referral mechanism, and to in particular build and, and strengthen those and also put funding into that to really ensure that also when the war continues, but also we know, of course, other refugees and, and migrants come in, that they can all be adequately referred and supported. So we really call also for that. 
and governments in general, what we see in Poland, in the other neighboring countries, also in Moldova, very often we see anti-trafficking structures at governmental level are understaffed. There's limited funding for action plan and national strategies. And also NGOs like our members who are working in the field are very often understaffed, coping with limited funding. And so they cannot as quickly as, for example, international bodies do immediately extend services and, and, and build further on their services. So that's very much needed still. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Have there been any examples of enforcement actions or people who've actually been rescued from trafficking since the war in Ukraine began, since the outflow of refugees began? 
Yeah, it's difficult to say if people have been rescued as such. I would also not have this information. What we have information about is that there have been informal and formal investigations started. There have been people identified at borders, but also in shelters or people um, at work already who have, where there have been indications that they might have been potentially trafficked. And those people have been referred to support structures, uh, including our members. And we, my latest information, and this changes, of course, uh, very often, is that we have at least received at least eight requests for support. So eight Ukrainians who needed support, who are potentially trafficked, have been referred to uh, our member organizations at this moment. How difficult is it to reach people once they have been trafficked? Yeah, it's quite difficult to reach them for various reasons. First of all, the person themselves might not think he or she is in an exploitative situation. So he, he or she might not come forward. Also, depending also on the situation, is the person legal? Now with Ukrainians, of course, they have much more protection and support. What we see if people, for example, are undocumented or risk to be deported from a country, they are very often not so eager to come forward and to inform the police, for example. Uh, so that's a difficulty. Secondly, people might be quite isolated. For example, if you are hosted in a household and you have to work there and so you are actually exploited by the people who host you, then of course it's much more difficult to get in contact with others and to seek assistance and support than, for example, you work in a legal company and there are other colleagues or other people you can talk with. And of course, also other issues. Do you speak the language? Do you know the assistance structure and the protection structure in the country? Do you know uh, who to call? What we often also hear is people maybe tend not to believe or not to trust the police and rather avoid that, try to organize it themselves. That's, of course, very difficult to reach out to them and to get in contact with them. And yeah, of course, they should also be guaranteed that they get the assistance and support they need. I'm slightly surprised that you say that some people don't realize they are, they're be, they've been trafficked or that they're being exploited. Would you not realize if you're being held somewhere with very limited you know, access to the outside world, your salary is being taken off you? Do people just think, well, I'm a refugee and... I've just get, got to get on with it. It depends very much on the background of the person. If the person were already in an exploitative situation before, we had one case that people were actually transported from Ukraine to, I think, it was Romania. So the person wasn't already in an exploitative situation, was traveling with true traffickers. And then, of course, people are already maybe in such a situation much longer. If people have a background of violence, domestic violence and things, they also yeah, do not know so much anymore what is, uh, yeah, what what is, is normal, normal, what is acceptable. Not. Yeah. And, and then, of course, you have people, of course, here now with Ukraine, but I'm also speak a more general now with Ukraine, if you can say it. So it depends very much. If people had a normal employment, a normal situation of living, they are uh, coming to Poland and they're suddenly in a very exploitative situation, for sure, they would immediately uh, recognize that. And also, what are their chances for support? But if you, for example, have a, a refugee, let's say the person was already undocumented 
in Ukraine is maybe stateless, has not much options to leave, was maybe already in a very difficult situation before. We also hear very often that people think, let's wait a little bit. Maybe the situation will improve, especially also in, in, for example, in work, which is exploitative. At least the employer promised to pay me next week. Let's wait then still for next week. So very often we also hear that people in exploitative situations still think that they can change it themselves or that there will be something will be positive coming in or they are afraid to complain already or to leave thinking that within they will definitely not be paid back the salary they already owned, for example. So it's very difficult. And of course, situations are not always the same. We also have people who are trafficked, and it maybe sounds odd, but who are not kept captive, who are maybe free to leave or to freely move, but maybe don't have their passport anymore, or maybe they are, yeah, how to say, they, yeah, maybe force is used, or maybe threats are being used due to which they do not leave. You, you can imagine, for example, people who are in a very violent relationship or face domestic violence. Also, often we see that they don't necessarily leave, even though they have the chance. It's because other circumstances keep them in that situation. One thing I remember from when I was a reporter in the Balkans in, in the early noughties was that there was already a real problem with trafficking of women into prostitution. And Ukraine and Moldova were two of the main source countries. Is there already an awareness in those in uh, among Ukrainian women that this is one of the risks they might face? Because this has been th this was a problem going back twenty years, and I imagine there's still some of that now. Yes, definitely. And I would say we actually even hear that people hear so much about trafficking for sexual exploitation and also all the awareness raising done, that also people we hear are, are quite concerned themselves and also tend not to believe uh, a legitimate help that is offered to them. So, of course, we don't want to scare people too much. But, of course, that's in their minds and many people are aware of it. There's a lot of awareness raising. And it's also true, as you said, for years, trafficking of sexual exploitation was very much connected also to women in Central and Eastern Europe, in Europe, uh, in particular, also women from Russia, from Ukraine, from Moldova. We heard it a lot. And when we started to work actually 25 years ago, especially also, we always heard about trafficking for sexual exploitation. Trafficking for sexual exploitation is still the highest form of human trafficking reported in Europe. We see a very interesting change. We see that more cases are now reported uh, slightly of trafficking for labor exploitation and also other forms. And if you then look in particular at uh, Moldova and Ukraine, what's interesting is over the last couple of years, uh, just before COVID and during COVID, actually it changed quite enormously. And even in Ukraine, over 90% of the cases registered, mainly by the International Organization for Migration, were actually cases of men and women trafficked for labor exploitation, so not for sexual exploitation. So the figures are no longer on that side. Now, of course, the problem with registration figures is that you never know 
the actual information. You never know how many people you identify and that are registered or trafficked. How many percentage are they of the total people in exploitative situation? Because what you don't see will not end up in the registration. But what we know from the last years before the war, both for Moldova and for Ukraine, is that actually more people were trafficked for labor exploitation. What are the best ways of reaching the people who are potentially at risk? The best way is, of course, ensure that information is accurate, is correct, and also explain all the possible questions people have. We heard, for example, when we were in Warsaw, when we talked to a lot of people who spoke with refugees and we spoke with some refugees ourselves, is that People were just asking, uh, where can I best go? Can I go to Germany? Should I go to UK? Should... So people very often had no clue and it's very difficult for them to very quickly decide. But also what we also saw in the beginning days is that a lot of people still applied for asylum, but that also meant that they could not leave the countries. And then you also saw that this was stopping and then people registered in order to, uh, to get the temporary protection directive. But what we also noticed is that some people decided to wait and not register at all, due to which they have lack of access to, to financial support, to, to protection and assistance and, and, and shelter, and also to be allowed to access the labor market. And the last reason was also that pe some people worried, at least that's what we were told, that maybe they were not able to return to Ukraine, that maybe they could not return in a certain amount of time, that once they were registered in Poland, they could not suddenly leave and then travel further to Germany. And so when those who of them who did not made up their mind yet decided to wait with registration and this of course makes them also vulnerable for exploitation and abuse so what we say is adequate information is needed now we see that a lot of governments at eu level also moldova are providing already quite good um, information but it should be ensured that also all the concerns that people have are really addressed what happens if i first register in poland and then for example to, to move to germany again and if i deregister in poland will i still have access and even for us that's still at the moment uh, not so clear because we already hear the first anecdotal stories that people have no access to the temporary protection directive because they have moved countries, for example. So information is needed. Secondly, people should, of course, also be informed about the risk of human trafficking and how to protect themselves, the do's and the don'ts. And I think there should be much more monitoring of all this, um, especially also the job offers. So states should guarantee that the job market that people access that they have equal access to decent work like any regular citizen has and that it should not be that Ukrainians now coming in need for a job, that they are requested to do the cheap jobs, that they uh, have to do uh, work and be much lesser paid. And so we really should ensure that governments ensure that they have uh, decent uh, incomes and decent uh, working conditions. And what are some of the red flags that um, people should be watching out for and that enforcement agencies should be watching out for? There are quite some red flags, of course, if you should not sign a contract. If, if the contract is not in your language, if you offer to contract as a Ukrainian, you should request that your contract is also in uh, Ukrainian. You should be allowed to have a couple of days or time to think about it. You should be able to check your contract. You should have a copy 
of your contract. You should be, you should get at least a minimum wage that is valid in the country. You should not be paid for housing and no other costs should be reducted from your uh, income when you work somewhere. Uh, you should also not be uh, forced to pay for recruiting you and recruitment costs. So these are a lot of red flags that we say, okay, be careful. This might, yeah, this might look at potential in exploitation. Also, if people are housed in with many others in one house, if they have to pay an enormous amount for their housing, and this is all deducted from their income, these are definitely also red flags. What is the single most important thing that governments can do at this stage to reduce the risk of trafficking? If you could say one thing to them, what should they do? Where should they concentrate their efforts? Yeah, I think information and monitoring, that's the two things that they should check. These are the risks. They know the risk. We know the risk. And for each of those risks, they say, okay, how do we monitor that it doesn't go wrong? If we say we should know who these volunteers are, then ensure that they're all fatted. We should know who are those hosts that offer them accommodation. Then they have to ensure that this is maps, that we know where are these people staying, people who are paid. So it's not only necessary you check once the housing and you say they're staying there, we pay them, but you should, of course, also control once more. Are they safe in those housing? Do the housing fulfill the minimum conditions that should be requested from a host? Is it clear that they are not forced in that house, for example, to do all the domestic, that they have to look after children suddenly and just because they can live there for free, they are, they are demanded that they work nonstop, for example, in such a house? Because we We've also seen such kind of cases in the past, and we are worried that such cases will also appear now. Suzanne Hoff from La Strada, thank you. That's all for this episode. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, rate, review, or subscribe to World Review, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.